Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. So a couple of brief notes before we get started. This is the second part of our Tarantino retrospective. Um, so we just did part one where we talked about Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, uh, and Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. This episode will be focused on Death Proof, Inglorious Bastards, um, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight. Another note is a programming note. Uh, this episode is going up on both the Collider Factory as well as our new channel, where you'll find all of our episodes going forward, uh, Collider Weekly. And, <laughs> and on Collider Weekly, you'll also get uh, a new podcast from our animation editor, Dave Trumbor, where he dives into animation each week. So that's going to be really exciting. So basically, this new channel is going to be for podcasts from people who write for Collider.com. And that's just sort of streamlining everything and making it easier for our, our listeners. So we hope you'll check out Dave's podcast when it launches later this month. And um, it's very know, secure this route. <laughs> We began this podcast back uh, for the first Hunger Games movie as The Collision. It was Did the we colli- start as yeah, The Collision? Yeah, we started as The Collision. <laughs> uh, our own feed, and then when the the Movie Talk and Jedi Council folks joined Collider, uh, we went into the factory. And now, just to kind of streamline things and to, to avoid kind of the, the factories getting a little busy, we're getting our own, essentially a dot-com feed, but it's called Collider Weekly, uh, as Matt said. Dave's doing an animation podcast. He'll have interviews um, um, with the creators from some really cool shows. Uh, he'll be reviewing um, a lot of shows. Uh, you know, maybe we'll we'll do some other dot com e things in this Collider Weekly feed. Maybe um, we'll do more Collider.com podcast miniseries. Maybe I'll force Matt to watch bad movies and talk about them more. Um, yeah. <laughs> we'll start an entire John Carter podcast series. John Carter, episode thirty-five. We have to. We still have to do Lone Ranger. We're gonna. Do yeah, one. we're gonna do Lone Ranger at some point, and we're also gonna do. Oh gosh, there was one other sort of massive Disney flop that we had talked about. And yeah, I, and I can't remember. I can't remember uh, what Tomorrowland. It was. Oh yeah, Tomorrowland. So we'll talk about all that stuff. Uh, but uh, for now, we're we're wrapping up our Tarantino retrospective. And uh, let's let's kick things off with Death Proof. Yes. Um, so, Adam, what what did you you know for, for those who don't know, Death Proof is the second part of a double feature called Grindhouse that Tarantino did in 2007 with director Robert Rodriguez. And Robert Rodriguez's part is called Planet Terror. There are some fake trailers mixed in. Uh, Eli Roth did a fake trailer. Edgar Wright did a fake trailer. Um, Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie. Uh, one of the fake trailers was for Machete, and that actually turned out to be its own. That that turned into its own franchise. Um, but Tarantino's bit is Death Proof, and Death Proof is kind of a tricky animal. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, yeah. So I when I rewatched Death Proof, it's sort of like at the beginning of Death Proof, like Tarantino's like he's kind of with the bit. You know, he's like, oh, you know, it's dirty. And look, there's a there's a reel missing. And then eventually he just kind of lets it go and it becomes a regular film. Yeah. Um, it's very weird to watch Death Proof now, knowing what we know about what happened on Kill Bill. Um, and for those who don't know, uh, last year or maybe it was earlier this year, but I, we in the last year or so, I think we learned that uh, there a stunt went bad on Kill Bill uh, involving Uma Thurman driving a car. The car kind of spun out of control and crashed into a tree, uh, and she really hurt her back. Um, and so the footage from this became sort of this important document for her legal battle against the Weinstein Company, and Tarantino kind of got caught in the middle between Harvey Weinstein and Uma Thurman. And Death Proof now functions as kind of this confessional quality to it but not really like it's a confession but no one knew what he was confessing to so yeah like we again we just learned about this last year and death proof came out in 2007 so it doesn't feel like the most genuine confession but it's a weird film it's it's very strange it's a weird movie and i go back and forth on it when i first saw it i didn't like it and then i watched it again and i really loved it um 
And then on this most recent rewatch, I was a little bored. I think it's the kind of movie that you have to be in the right mood for. Mm. Um, because it is by its own nature, very shaggy. Um, like kind of the first 30, 40 minutes or so, uh, is just, you know, it's kind of like a female pulp. It's like the, the, um, Jules and Vincent scene from the opening of Pulp Fiction, but stretched out to like 30 or 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's just a group of girls talking about bullshit, like just bullshitting kind of, um, and talking about whatever. So it's, it's Tarantino kind of getting indulgent which is a word i've been using a lot uh in these tarantino podcasts uh and sometimes you're down for that sometimes you're just like uh kicking back on a saturday and you're like yeah i just want to live in this world and just kind of enjoy whatever and sometimes you want a little bit more momentum so that, that's why i say kind of you have to be in the right mood for it um i do like the 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 notion that you essentially get two movies in one with death proof because it you know, you open with a set of girls, he kills those girls, and then he moves on to a new set of girls. Um, and then the second half of the film kind of flips the first half of the film on its head. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's it's essentially, I mean, Tarantino said it was his take on a slasher movie. Um, and uh, for the most part, I think Kurt Russell is really effective and, and really compelling as that lead character. Um, but it's a little shaggy. Yeah, it it doesn't like, and I think that like shapeless, I guess. When I think that shagginess, like you said, is part of the form. It's part of that grindhouse kind of aesthetic in terms of. Yeah. See, like when you watch Planet Terror, Planet Terror feels like someone who watched a bunch of grindhouse trailers and made that just a movie that's a long trailer for a grindhouse film. So like Planet Terror is just pretty much nonstop action. Yeah, but yeah. the thing about a grindhouse film is that they're cheap. <laughs> that That's the whole thing. They can't really afford to be nonstop action. There might be a couple set pieces to like, you know, draw people in, but you know, really the, the best way to make your dollar go further is to just have people talking for long stretches and grindhouse does that. Um, my issue, you know, the thing I really like about grindhouse and, and I still like about grindhouse is that it is sort of, it, it's the gender dynamics of it and how yeah. it turns sort of, you know, stuntman Mike who has all the power in the first half and he thinks he has it in the second half is opposed, is then turned to be in kind of this whimpering baby um, when he gets any kind of resistance. Yeah. Um, it's really fun and it really sort of, I like how it turns things on its head. Um, but like you said, it is kind of shaggy. It does kind of go on. But at the same time, like I, I appreciate the stunt work. I think Zoe Bell strapped to the, roof of that car, that the hood of that car as the car goes really fast is pretty exhilarating. Um, but again, the confessional quality of it, Zoe Bell was Uma Thurman's stunt woman on Kill Bill. So it's, it's just strange. Cause one of the appeals of death proof is that the stunts are all for real and they're all practical and there's no CG. And you're like, man, these stunts are crazy. And like mm-hmm. Zoe Bell is really putting her life in danger. And then that story came out in which Uma Thurman said her life was put in danger needlessly. Like she she says that she protested. She didn't want to drive the car. She didn't feel comfortable. She didn't feel safe. And Tarantino and the powers that be pushed her to do it anyway. And it led to that crash. Right. Um, so it's it's tricky. It, it, it makes this a, a very strange film in hindsight, like you said. Yeah. And and the thing that kind of bums me out and, and maybe someone has asked him about it. I mean, there are a lot of Tarantino conversations coming out, but – Right now, because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, no one seems to have really confronted him about it, which is as far as I can tell, which yeah. is a bit of like, and I get it, like, you know, you want to be respectful, but at the same time, like, we all know this, like, if we know the story now, then let's, let's dig into it. Let's talk about Death Proof. And instead, people are like, what about Star Trek? And like, you know, that's all well and good. No one has even asked him wh- why he won't release Kill Bill, the whole bloody affair. <laughs> so. Yeah. It's a it's a strange. I, I mean, some of these interviews are very fascinating, and I understand you only get a limited amount of time. But yeah, you're right. There there are um, serious things to discuss. And to his credit, I will say Josh Horowitz did bring up the whole Weinstein ordeal. Oh, he and, did. Uh, the answer was kind of like, "This is the answer. This is it, and we're moving on." Awesome. <laughs> Look, and, and here's the thing. I understand the way Tarantino acts the way that he does. If I had been called a genius since the time I was in my mid twenties, I'd probably act the same way. Yeah, well, he wasn't a dick about it. He was essentially just like, I mean, he was asked, you know, seeing the Weinstein name on all of these films. Does it make him want to remove it, make him mm-hmm. feel weird? And he essentially said, well, Harvey Weinstein paid for these movies. He deserves to have his name on these movies. Whatever happened, he paid for them and whatever, which is fair. That I mean, is it, fair. 
And yeah. you and I have discussed this. Like, you can't pretend like history didn't exist. You can't erase people from history. Although, um, as we get to Inglorious Bastards, <laughs> maybe you can. <laughs> you can. Um, like, uh, these things happen, for better or worse. Certain great films would not have existed without Harvey Weinstein. And you can also say he is a monster and a terrible human being. And if the trade-off was good movies or uh, these women not being victimized, you would choose these women not being victimized any day of the week. So. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, Death Proof. Did, is... I, I wanted to ask. So, did you actually see Grindhouse? Have you seen the shorter cut of Death Proof? No, no. I've seen, I went. I I paid money to see Grindhouse see in theaters. <laughs> I sat through all three hours of Grindhouse. <laughs> so, how is? I've never seen the shorter version of Death Proof. What? How is it? It's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had fun with it. You know, yeah. I had fun. It's fun. <laughs> the longer version feels so long, but it also feels like I, I just, is it kind of incoherent? Cause the shorter version is only like an hour long, right? Or 45 minutes or so. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I couldn't like, I saw death proof in 2007 and then I didn't bother revisiting it until this, you know, I was preparing for this podcast and my upcoming Tarantino ranked article. Um, I honestly couldn't tell any major differences. I thought like, oh, it's just the same movie. Like mm. I remembered all like the major scenes and like, oh, okay. There's like, there's still the real missing thing in the cut yeah. I watched. Like, I mean, I have Grindhouse. Like I don't have the independent, like I don't have Death Proof as a standalone. I have Grindhouse as a movie. Oh, okay. So. I didn't realize they sold, they, so they sell that on like a Blu-ray or something? Yeah, Grindhouse is on Blu-ray. It's in a steel book. You can just buy it on Amazon. Oh. Maybe I should buy that. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's $15. It's not expensive. <laughs> I will say the effects are very cool. Um, and this, I can't remember if Kill Bill starts it or if Death Bruce starts it, where Tarantino starts working with Greg Nicotero, mm. um, the effects master who now is an executive producer on The Walking Dead and um, created all the zombies and stuff for The Walking Dead. But um, he has a pretty significant presence on these, these films that we're talking about today. Yeah. So. Um. So yeah, Death Proof is is kind of interesting, but then we so then we move on to Inglorious Bastards, which I think is one of Tarantino's best by far. I agree, I wholeheartedly agree. And I was a little worried, but like I remembered loving it when I saw it in theaters. I bought the Blu-ray, and then like I hadn't seen it. Like it came out in '09, so I hadn't seen it like in about ten years or so. Um, but I, I was, so I was a little nervous, like, oh, you know, I, I remembered liking Kill Bill a lot too. And that didn't, one didn't hold up as well, but Inglorious holds up incredibly well. It just feels like a more mature, more confident film while still retaining Tarantino's personality. Like it feels like, yeah, there's still the references that he, you know, he's still drawing from that well of his, you know, experiences and personality and all that, but it feels more controlled and that he has a lot more mastery over holding tension and that he has something specific on his mind. Whereas like Kill Bill is, and, and Death Proof are just kind of these fun indulgences to be sort of like, wee, look at the movies I like. <laughs> well, in Kill Bill, which is two films. Yes, despite whatever Tarantino <laughs> says, he released them as two films. They're only available as two films. <laughs> yeah, so unless he wants to release the whole bloody affair and say that is my that is my cut, um, but like no one has a way to see it. So Kill no. Bill is two movies. Unless you're at the New Beverly, which you know you have to live in LA. Um, but Kill Bill is, uh, and he said this in interviews, that's the only one of his films where everything's in the movie because he didn't cut anything out because he split it in two parts. And that's kind of why it feels a little unwieldy. Mm -hmm. And also, I don't agree that it's one film because if you just stitch volume one and volume two together, it doesn't work. Because there are opening credit sequences. There are different ways to open the movie. Um, the pacing would be completely screwed up. The pacing is off. Information gets repeated. Um, so, yeah, that's stupid. But... Inglorious Bastards feels like, and I said this on the last podcast before I had um, revisited it, I said like some of those films feel like they might be better as miniseries, and you said you disagree on Inglorious Bastards. After watching Inglorious Bastards again, I agree with you. Um, it's just the right kind of film, and it it does feel like, and he has said that he's excised um, extemporaneous uh, plot pieces or subplots and stuff like that uh, to streamline it to the film that we see today. And <clears throat> I think it works incredibly well. Uh, it's a movie in which like, no scene is wasted. There's absolutely no scene in Inglorious Bastards where my attention starts to wane. No. Every single scene, there's tension. Uh, there's something compelling happening on screen. Or you're switching out of a, of um, 
um, one of the subplots or, or switching out of one of the points of view to a different point of view at a point in time where you really want to see what happens next with that other point of view. Um, yeah, and I still think I still think that opening sequence is maybe the best thing he's ever written. I, I would agree with that. I mean, this is sort of it's the last film Sally Menke edited. Yeah, um, I think I don't think she edited anything else. Um, she died in 2010. Um, and this is just short, it's just her at the top of her game. And just afterwards, you see just how invaluable she was to Tarantino. Like just yeah. the way that, you know, it's sort of like good, like there are directors and editors who just kind of share a mind and like they can kind of really hack things in a way that they need to be cut. Um, you see that with Scorsese and Thelma Schoenmacher. Um, yeah. Well, and editors also serve as a as a check, especially as directors get to the level of Tarantino or Scorsese, where they need someone who's going to be honest with them and say, this is a mess. Yeah, this or is a mess. When, this isn't working or we can cut this back or yeah. Yeah. Or when they're, you know, uh, despondent and saying my film is a mess, they need an editor to be like, no, 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 it's it's fine. We know what we can do. Right. This is how we fix it. Exactly. So, you know, I, I mean, I just yeah, I think Inglorious just works on every level. Um it's, it's just very confident. Um, but it also, it's a film, I think it is Tarantino. It is his movie about movies. Whereas I think, you know, once Mm -hmm. upon a time in Hollywood, and and we'll get to that in our once upon a time in Hollywood episode is about the industry and about changing in the industry. I think Inglorious is about movies. It's about the observer and the observed. It is all about this and all about Inglorious is people putting on shows for other people. Like that's whether they're, you know, it's whether it, you know, you know, Hans Landa prides himself as an observer of human, you know, as a detective. And of course the big joke on him is that he, he fails to <laughs> properly observe his opponent at the end. Yeah. Um, the bastards are all about showing the Nazis how cruel they can be and leaving a, you know, trail of carnage in their wake. And Shoshana wants to use the theater to literally put on a show that is also her vengeance. Yeah. Well, and Bridget von Hammersmark is a double agent. Is a double uh, agent, and so is Michael Fassbender's character. And like, yeah. I mean, that whole scene is just people putting on a show and trying to maintain the facade, and it all comes crashing down because of one <laughs> wrong gesture, which is brilliant. <laughs> it's so, and and that's it's, and this is why Inglorious Bastards is one of my favorite uh, Tarantino films, and probably one of my favorite films of all time. Um, not only is that opening sequence one of the best things Tarantino's ever written, but so is the basement scene. He has two like top tier, A plus, incredible all timer sequences in one movie. Um, and that that basement scene, I've seen this movie a lot, and I still got super nervous and super tense watching it, and like just didn't want the thing to happen that I know was going to happen. Uh, you're just on the edge of your seat the entire time because you know that it's going to go wrong for these guys or they're so close to it going wrong. Um, and the, the reveals, like the way that Tarantino reveals information. I mean, there's that Hitchcock thing where, uh, you know, two people are having a conversation at a table. If you show the audience, there's a bomb under that table, you create suspense. Um, in Inglorious Bastards, that opening scene, it starts with Hans Lana questioning this French farmer um, for the first 10 minutes. He's just questioning him. The camera goes below the floorboard. You realize there are Jews hidden underneath the floorboards. There's an added layer of tension. In the basement scene, you learn halfway through that scene, there is the Gestapo officer is in the other room. He's in this area with them, which they thought they were going to be all alone. And so that just increases the stakes and the tension tenfold. Yeah. It's, it just really works on so many levels and it just, it comes together and yeah, that tension, like, I mean, that first scene you, I, I, every time, like I forget to breathe. Yeah. And it's, and it's not like, you know, it's not like that, that Tarantino like cranks the tension to, um, to 10 immediately. Like he really eases you into it. And, you know, Christoph Waltz's performance is, is magnificent. Um, Kyle Buchanan recently described it as like an evil person reading nursery rhymes, <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that that's his voice. And it's, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, 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 I learned recently that DiCaprio was originally considered to play mm-hmm. La- Landa. Um, and I think he would have been interesting, but I can't see anyone else but Waltz in that role. No, and I think if I remember correctly, because I was following uh, the 
uh, development and production of Inglorious Bastards pretty closely at the time. Um, the language was the issue, and that's what Tarantino really wanted someone who could speak French, German, and uh, Italian, I think. Yep. Uh, and English as well, um, who could do it really well, mm-hmm. and Christoph Waltz could. Um, and But I think he got to a point where he was kind of unsure if this part was playable. Like mm. He was maybe going to have to change the script. Um but just the and, and like language is such a huge part of this film, and it's this movie is so funny. Like yeah, the when, he when brings the, out the pipe. Yeah, or when when the bastards have to pretend to be Italian. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. Like language, like it's hilarious that the villain of this film, who is the Jew hunter, who is this crazy formidable force, he's fluent in at least four languages that we know of. Um, and then the protagonist is this hillbilly from Kentucky, Tennessee, can, Tennessee. Sorry, um, who can barely string an English sentence together, but he's the hero. Like he's the you know can't be faced. Well, he he is. Tech. I would say he is he is sort of the formidable counterbalance. I would say the film's hero is Shoshana. Sure, sure, but like the the yeah, I guess I'm in like the counterpoint to Hansla. Yes, the, that's true. The, yeah, the person that he's chasing, the person like. They, they are chasing each other. They are, mm-hmm. they are on a road, and this this road will find them crossing paths at one point or another. And, you know, usually you have two uh, pretty formidable forces, but I just think it's really funny to make one this loquacious, uh, eloquent, um, you know, German soldier and this other, uh, you know, this hillbilly <laughs> who's really good at what he does. Yeah. Just killing Nazis. Yeah. I mean, it's a film that, that's funny, but it also, like, I think it acknowledges the, the, that it never forgets the stakes or the weight of history. Like, I think it, 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 yeah. it, is, it is kind of a magnificent kind of magic trick that the fact that it can be a film where it, it changes history, where Hitler gets shot in the face um, by a lot. a lot by Jewish soldiers, which is hooray, um, which I don't really mind because if you want to like, you know, Hitler doesn't, you know, we don't need to be respectful towards Hitler. Um, but I think it's still, I think Tarantino is sort of trying to be respectful towards the Holocaust and World War II by like, by making the, making sure that the soldiers are Jewish, uh, that the bastards are Jewish and sort of using, uh, and, and also that Shoshana is Jewish and sort of using that as kind of, a formidable kind of force. Yeah. Um, yeah. Shoshana is, and there's, I mean, the performances all across the board are really incredible. Um, Melanie Laurent, I think is, is really terrific as Shoshana. Diane Kruger is really tremendous. Um, Daniel Brühl is really great. And you forget that this was kind of the beginning, like Beckel Fassbender at this point, he hadn't even made, or Shane, I don't think Shame had been released by the time that uh, he was cast in A Glorious Bastards. No, he was kind of like a rising star. Like I think at this point, Hunger and Fish Tank had come out, but he wasn't really known to American audiences. Yeah. Um, so that was a that was a pretty huge find, and then Daniel Bruhl obviously was a, a really big deal, and then Christoph Waltz, uh, of course. Um, but I just I love Brad Pitt as Aldo Rain. Oh, it, he I could just keep I could just I I even sometimes when I'm feeling down, I'll just watch that that opening scene where he yeah. talks to the. <laughs> it's it's one of Tarantino's best characters. Uh, yeah, and Pitt plays him perfectly. I will say the only. Literally, the only part of the movie I do not like is Eli Roth. I just think it takes me out of the movie so much. <laughs> the, where he's like really hitting that phony Boston accent. He's just like, yeah, Donnie, you your war burgers. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on. But it's it, it just feels a little, and maybe it's just because I know too much, but it's just like, oh, Tarantino's friend is in the movie. Yeah, his pal, his Jewish pal yeah. is in the movie. His Jewish pal is in the movie, which the, apparently that part was offered to Adam Sandler. Um, huh. Their past for uh, to make more money doing something else. <laughs> yeah, he was busy. Like it was a scheduling conflict. And as we get to these bigger movies, you'll you'll notice that scheduling conflicts got in the way of a lot of casting things. Um, Simon Pegg was supposed to be the the character that Meg Myers plays. Actually, no, I heard no, no. Hillcox. Actually, I heard that he was supposed to be Fassbender's character. Yeah, Hillcox. That's right. Yeah. Um. Uh. And he had a conflict with something or other on that one. I think he was um, doing Paul at the time. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, so there's there's a lot of interesting alt castings from uh, movies like this, but uh, it just it's one of those movies where everything comes together perfectly. Mm-hmm. In that ending, oh my god, 
that final shot, that final line, like <laughs> it, it takes balls to write that line, but, but then, but to like, actually earn it, <laughs> to earn it, like it, it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, the movie I just sat through, yeah. Yeah, you can do that. You can say that this is a masterpiece. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'll I'll allow it. I'll. I hate that you have this much game, but yeah, damn it. And yet, and yet, the Oscars he lost to Up in the Air for best original screenplay. Yeah, so no, that, or best adapted screenplay. Best adapted screenplay. What did what is Inglorious adapt? Oh, is it adapted? Oh no 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 no. Sorry sorry. Um, Up in the Air won adapted. Uh, Hurt Locker won original screenplay uh. this year. Um, which I, I mean, and we'll get to Django Unchained, which is when Tarantino was going up against, um, uh, gosh, what's his name? Mark, um, the writer of Hurt Locker. Mark Bull. Mark Bull. Um, he went up against him again for Django Unchained and and Tarantino won. But I, I think Inglorious Bastards is one of the best screenplays Tarantino's ever written. So it's, it's kind of a bummer that it it lost out. Yeah. But Um, whatever. Whatever, it's fine. Let's not. Yeah. Let, we don't need to go down the Oscar road. We really no. don't. Well, Tarantino very much cares. Oh so. yeah. Well, he, he has. Super pissed when Pulp Fiction came out and was in the awards race and kept losing to Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, I'd be pretty pissed about that too. I guess. Uh, yeah. But he has two Oscars now. I mean. Yeah. Come on. He's all right. He's doing okay. All right. So now we move on to Django Unchained, which had its own unique kind of production history. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot that I like about Django Unchained. Although when I t- think about it, one of the things that always comes to mind is, wow, here's Will Smith making a really poor career decision. <laughs> so bad. They chased after him so hard. Uh-huh. Tarantino met on the set of Men in Black and sat in his giant trailer and was like, come on, man, do Django Unchained. And Will Smith was is it? like, no, I have to be the guy who shoots, who shoots candy. I'm like, do you not understand? Like, just, there's a reason that that, that, there's a reason that King Schultz shoots candy. Like there's a reason these things happen Mm -hmm. like narratively and thematically. I know that you're like, I'm the hero. He's the villain. I'm like, but work a little harder. Will (laughs) come on, man. Yeah, that was stupid. Um, but anyway, collateral beauty, much, much better decision. Yeah. Totally fine. After Um, earth. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Django, and, and we should also say Inglorious Bastards made $321 million worldwide, which is kind of insane when you think about it. It's, it's only one third in English, basically. Yeah. Um, it's a foreign, I mean, not a foreign film, but a foreign language film, I would say. I would categorize it as. Um, and Django is the biggest hit of Tarantino's career, and it made $425 million worldwide, which is nuts for a nearly three hour long slave drama. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, but. People were were there for it, um, and it's it's so watchable though. It's, it's very, very entertaining. It's very entertaining. It's too long, way too long. Yeah, and this the thing is, one is that there I isn't say... like a there isn't like a scene I would just cut outright. No, um, some people are like, you got to get rid of the bag scene. I'm like, the bag scene is hilarious, <laughs> and it also well, hi- I... highlights the theme of how everyone is like how white supremacy kind of shapes this world and how everyone is kind of dependent on it, regardless of their social strata strata. All white people are, are dependent on it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think the brittle brothers thing is a bit of a detour, but it's also necessary because it shows Django kind of coming into his own as a bounty hunter. I mean, that's his first kill as a bounty hunter, essentially. Right. Um, but it's also doesn't have a ton of bearing on the plot. And you have a very long loquacious scene with Don Johnson saying the N word a lot, um, which is a thing we should probably discuss. <laughs> yeah, I believe I believe Django Unchained holds the record for most uses of the N word. Yeah. Which... Um, and like, I get it. Like he wants to put you in that time period and like how it's being you like, I get it. I it would work better for me if Tarantino hadn't so casually deployed it in other movies. Yeah. Like if I'll, I'll say if Tarantino didn't deploy it, like in Pulp Fiction, when he says it unnecessarily, like, I just feel like he's a little too liberal with it. And I get, there's a reason for it in, in Django. I get there's a reason for it in hateful eight. I just, it's a, it's a bit much. It's a bit much. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it, I understand it, but you also you can't ignore the fact that it's a white writer who's writing all of this. 
that's Ab- absolutely and of- and that's also sort of the the tricky part of Django and Hateful Eight, which I always which I see as kind of companion pieces because they both yeah. explore race relations in America. And I feel like with Django, like I mean, Tarantino's really attacking sort of white supremacy and notions of civility and what makes a, a civil what what makes some what makes a civilization consider itself to be civilized like that's really what he's going at mm. um and i think that's interesting and i think that that's really cool i also think that you know sometimes it's better for especially white artists and white journalists and everyone to just shut up a bit and stop and listen. Yeah. (laughs) You know, to take a step back and listen to other voices might be a good idea. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but Django is a fun movie. I can't, I can't deny that. It's super fun. And as a white male in America, talking to another white male in America. Yeah, exactly. That that was not (laughs) lost on me as I was saying that shit. Um, It's, uh, I mean, it's huge. It's a huge movie. And the production of it was very much kind of a little bit fly by the seat of your pants. Uh, there were a bunch of alt castings. I mean, there were characters um, who had to be combined. I mean, th- there was one character, uh, Ace Woody, uh, who's Candy's Mandingo trainer. Um, Kevin Costner was supposed to play it, and then he had to drop out. And then Kurt Russell was supposed to play it, and then he had to drop out. And this was in the middle of filming. So... Tarantino just decided to merge the character with the Billy Crash character and Walton Goggins just took his lines. Um, There's supposed to be a big poker game. There is a big poker game in the script um, where Jonah Hill was offered this role. Um, He had scheduling conflicts. So then Sasha Baron Cohen was offered the role and they ended up never and he had he had to turn it down. So they ended up never shooting it. Um, There was just I remember at the time because we were like it was filming and we were still writing up like casting notices for it. Right. It was like, what is going on? Um, This is very crazy. But, you know, and Tarantino did this a little bit on Glorious Bastards. He wanted to make it down and dirty. And they started filming on Glorious Bastards in the fall of 2008. And he said, I want it ready by Cannes 2009. And he just kind of uh, forced himself to get it done. And uh he did change the cut. I mean, glorious bastards that screened it can, cause it was a little shaggy. Um, but I think he got, he, you know, after kill bill, which shooting lasts like 155 days on that one. And, uh, Jackie Brown, which took a while. And then he took a huge break in between. I think he kind of, uh, kind of got a fire lit under him and was really like excited about making movies. And I think Django Unchained shows that he's kind of capable of, you think of Tarantino as, as someone who's a very meticulous planner and maybe someone like Aaron Sorkin, you know, like everything has to be perfect. I think the productions of Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained show that he was very um, he's very capable of changing things on the fly and kind of morphing and and still making it work as a as a finished film. Yeah. That, again, that kind of comes with the maturity that he sort of has garnered over the years. Like, I don't think you look at films like like Inglorious and, and Django and those are movies that he could not have made like as his second or third feature. No, Um, absolutely not. And that's not to diminish Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown, but they're just more elaborate pictures that take a lot more, you know, they're, they, they're, they're more, they're sprawling. They, they have a lot more happening in them. Um, and a lot more is required, uh, of, of a director to sort of bring them together. Yeah, I look at Django as kind of like an epic adventure. Like that movie is huge. It goes in the snow, it goes in the desert. You're at Candyland, you're on plantations. Like the locations alone on that film are crazy. Yeah, it it goes everywhere. But it, you know, I think Jamie Foxx and and Christoph Waltz are great together. Um, I think DiCaprio gives a a terrific performance. It's so good. I was kind of mad that he didn't win supporting actor. He didn't even get nominated. He didn't even get nominated, which was he nominated for something else that year, maybe? I can't remember. He's always, there were those nom- years he's always there. nominated for something. Well, there were those years when it was like, uh, let's see. He gives a really great performance in The Departed, but let's go with Blood Diamond instead. <laughs> it's Oof. like, what are you doing? Um, no, he didn't have anything else that year. The year before he did J. Edgar. So, <laughs> oof. Oof. <laughs> let's, forget, let's pretend that movie doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, I think he's tremendous in this movie, and I just love that he sunk his teeth into essentially a villain role. Like, he plays just one of the most despicable characters Tarantino's ever written. And that's saying something. Um, but I just love how the character is so colorful. Like the, the added 
detail that he's a francophile but he does not speak french tells you so much about his character right he's a but not and and also like you know he like he, he not only does not speak french he doesn't understand even a word like panache yeah you know like he's an idiot like that's the thing like and like i love those little details that show like yes calvin candy may be at the you know top of the food chain um, in this world, but he's a buffoon. He was born into it and like, he doesn't reconsider it. And he may fancy it's like, he may, you know, the fact that he like thinks phrenology is science, yeah, you know, just to uphold his own racial beliefs is just shows that he's just living kind of a dumb, unexamined life of cruelty. And like, you know, but everyone, but he is sort of also in charge and it's like, that is very dark and disturbing. Yeah. Um, you know, all it's it's all very disturbing. And I, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, you look at a character like Samuel Jackson, Stephen, and like, you know, he is the house slave and he is despicable in his own way because he is clinging to the power that he has. Yeah. And so, you know, he'll be completely supplicant to a disgusting amount to Calvin and then sort of boss around all the other slaves. And it's just, again, that's, you know, that's this, again, it's these notions of civility. And that's why, um, King Schultz, who actually is civilized, who actually does understand, you know, th- you know, have sort of this moral center. He's the one that has to kill Candy because that bridge of you have to shake my hand. And the reason that he can't do it is because he's like, no, we're not going to lie here and pretend that you're a civilized person. I will yeah. go through the motions, but that is just one step too far to pretend that you know, your civilization matters and that you are my equal. And like, I'm going to shoot you instead. Yeah. Um, even if it's, it's, even though he knows it's going to get him killed. Like it's, I couldn't resist. Like, that's the thing. He, he it's couldn't. It's such a great moment. It's such a great moment, but he has to be the one to do it. If Django kills him, what is like, yeah, Django would kill him, but it would be in like, what a fit of anger because Calvin is an asshole. Like that thematically does not tie to the rest of the fic to the rest of the picture. No, because obviously Janko wants to kill all of them. That's kind of the thing. And and yeah. again, uh, white man talking warning here. Um, but yeah. I like the fact that Schultz is not a white character who is kind of racist and whose life is changed by having a relationship with a black character. No. From the beginning of the movie. This is not is Green not, Book. <laughs> no. He He's not unchanged by the end of the movie, but it's it doesn't take – um, having a relationship or a friendship with Django to turn him not racist. He's not racist through the whole film. He's civilized, as you say. Um, right. And even when he buys Django, he's very upfront about like what he's doing. Um, Why he abhors slavery. And instead he tries yeah. to turn sort of that rather than just saying you're a slave and definitely he's like, let's make an agreement. You do yeah. this and I'll trade you this. So still trying to recognize Django as more as someone who that has agency and can make a bargain. And you can see in another filmmaker's hands this story starting out as him as a racist, and then at the end he's not racist and he gets to kill the bad guy. That becoming like a cheering moment for mm-hmm. like white saviors everywhere, right? Um, and that's just kind of gross. Like that's kind of the Green Book thing. Of it's kind of like, uh, I, this makes me a little uncomfortable. The, yeah, the, the, I mean, and that's the thing. Like the most important thing, and again, that would be counter to this film's purpose, which is the whole purpose of a film like Green Book is to make white people feel better, which. And honestly, white people could stand to feel a little shitty. <laughs> I've, look, I'm a white guy. I feel shitty about racist things in the world. I, you know, like you just sometimes you got to feel shitty, people. It's just <laughs> it's you'll you'll get, I mean, you can live with feeling shitty. <laughs> yeah, you'll be OK. Yeah. There are worse things. Ask a black person. Yeah. Ask any minority. There are worse things than just feeling a little shitty because, you know, shitty things happen in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I I wish there was a little bit more to Broomhilda in the movie. Mm, Um, We see her really only through Django's point of view. Um, But I will also say this is the only one of Tarantino's films that makes me tear up, makes me cry. Um, That emotional connection between Django and Broomhilda I think is handled really well. Um, And there's obviously a heavy lift with John Legend. Uh, This is one of – is this the only Tarantino film to have like a curated soundtrack? No. Um, um, RZA curated the soundtrack for kill bill oh okay okay um but this is like a bunch of like original songs and stuff that were written specifically for this movie um mm. uh and the the john legend one i think does uh does a really tremendous job of of being kind of the through line of uh or i think it's the john legend song can't remember um the song that plays uh you know free i think it's called freedom mm. um 
which is kind of the the beating heart of that uh, Django Broomhilda relationship. So um, let's see, it's it's by Anthony Hamilton and Elena Boynton, so it's not the John Legend song. So my apologies. But it's very good, and I agree that 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 relationship is a strong heartbeat to the film, and it gives sort of Django. It makes Django. It makes it more than just a revenge quest. Well, and Carrie Washington's performance is so great because she doesn't have a ton of dialogue, but her physicality mm-hmm. and she's asked to do a lot at that dinner scene um, yes. with no dialogue. And I think she handles it really tremendously well. Um, so I, I think that's a really great performance. Too. There's not a bad performance in this movie at all. Um, but I will say I, I do think this is a movie that probably could have worked as a miniseries or as a limited series because there are like different quests and adventures. I think if, if Tarantino had gotten away with sort of the expanded casting, mm-hmm. then yeah. Um, here it feels like I, I would prefer to see it a little trimmed down rather than expanded. Sure. sure. So. Um, but if you want to talk there's about a, it. There's an extended cut that he's working on, a director's cut that he says he's going to release. So We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Vega Brothers. Well, that's never going to fucking happen. <laughs> that's never going to happen. But, you know, it's okay because John Travolta's doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> he's working with Fred Durst. He's working with Fred Durst and having the world's worst haircut. David Fincher. Really wor- worst wig, but yeah. whatever. Um, but anyway, yeah, if you want to talk about long movies, let's, <laughs> let's talk about Hateful Eight. Let's talk about the Hateful Eight, um, which we probably have a podcast for if you go back and look at it. Yeah, I'm sure. Sure it is. But, you know, I... the film has gone down in my estimation. I don't, there's no Tarantino movie I dislike, which I think is pretty impressive. I mean, I agree. 10 for 10. That's a, that's a tough record. Or 11 for 11, 10 for 10. Yes. Yeah. He'll build one and two. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough, that's a tough level of quality to maintain. Um, While some are better than others, there is no Tarantino film like, Oh, that's oof. That's rough. That's a, that's a cars two level fail. (laughs) Um, no, like it's, but, but you get pretty close with Hateful Eight because Hateful Eight, like, again, I, so with Hateful Eight, I really like the core of it, which is just cynical and nasty and misanthropic. And I can indulge that for maybe two hours. I can't do it for three. I can't do it for three hours of, I mean, the hateful in the title is not misleading. These are loathsome people who represent a loathsome view of humanity. Um, basically in the hateful eight, all relationships are done out of self-interest. Every relationship is just pure self-interest. There is no compassion. There is no empathy. It is really, I will work with you if only it serves me. That's it. That's the only level of trust you can aspire to in this world. And it makes it very bleak and very dark. It's so nasty. It's such a mean movie. Um, It feels like the kind of movie, like it's surprising this came out in 2015. It feels like a 2017 movie. If, if you look at our politics and the world (laughs) and maybe Tarantino was just ahead of the head of the game on that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and it, I I agree with you that it's a bit of a companion piece of Django. I mean, Django Unchained is very much about America. Um, and there was a line where um, Django, where Candy uh, is, you know, when the the slave is being torn apart by dogs, and Schultz is kind of disgusted, and Candy's asking Django, "What's up with your boss?" And he's like, "He's just not used to Americans." Right. Um, referring to just you know the the nastiness of americans and the brutality of americans uh hateful eight is is just eight despicable characters in a room for three hours uh and it's tough and the ending is super tough the ending is not triumphant the ending is not feel good the ending is not happy the ending is ugh. i need a shower um i will say uh so i saw it twice in theaters um, so for this most recent we watch, I wanted to watch the Netflix version, which Tarantino and Fred Decker uh, re-edited The Hateful Eight into a four-episode miniseries on Netflix with 20 to 25 minutes of extra footage. Uh, and it works surprisingly well. Um, the like the first chapter or the first episode ends shortly after they get to Minnie's haberdashery. Um, the second chapter ends where the intermission was, uh, if you saw the roadshow version of the film. The third chapter ends uh, on the twist uh, that happens towards the end of the movie. And then the fourth chapter is is mostly that that backstory. And 
The new footage is all the stuff with Channing Tatum. There's a lot more. Of oh, it. interesting. And you see, you see a lot more stuff from the point of view of Channing Tatum and those other characters. Um, when the when the timelines meet, you spend more time in the timeline you already saw, but you're seeing it from a different point of view, which is really interesting. Um, and you pick up on a couple of other things, which are kind of cool. So I will say, if you haven't watched the Netflix version and you're curious about giving Hateful Eight a rewatch, uh, I would suggest watching it. I can only see viewing it as a curiosity, though. Like, I can't yeah. be like, boy, give me more of this. Well, I was going to say, it works really well because you can watch 50 minutes and then stop. Oh, so, that's true. Like, you and it and the chapters do divide pretty well so you feel and there's a there's a recap at the beginning of each one that you can skip on netflix but if you like it's if it's been a week you can recap the the previous one so it is literally like tarantino made a mini series version of the hateful eight um which is kind of cool uh the meat of the movie is still there and as i said it's pretty much the same movie until you get to the ending there's about 20 minutes extra um when you get to the end of the film um but uh aside from all that i remember when i saw it i i didn't love it uh because it's so prickly but also it just felt more like a play than a film and it's a weird film to shoot in 70 millimeter it's a weird film to i mean yeah i mean it's I guess it's cool to be able to see all of the characters at once. Um, it is, but at the same time, like on a small TV, I mean, it is kind of cool to see all the characters at once, but at the same time, like I also think it kind of deprives the film of its claustrophobic feeling. I feel yeah. like the claustrophobia is built in, not just into the setting where they're trapped in a cabin essentially, but also because these are, it's a cramped world. It's a small, ugly, dirty world. These characters inhabit. Yeah. Yeah, there is not a ton of a claustrophobic feeling in the cinematography. Um, and I love Robert Richardson, and I think he did a tremendous job shooting Kill Bill and English Bastards and Django. Django in particular, I really like um, the cinematography in that film. Um, but I agree, it was an odd decision to shoot this in 70 millimeter. Um, I think the performances are good. Like, I think it's fun to see Kurt Russell playing kind of a rascal. Um, I think Walton Goggins is particularly particularly great in this I, yeah, movie. Yeah, Walton Goggins is so much fun in this movie. You got yeah. me talking politics. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam Jackson, I, I think it's nice to to see him back in a leading role in a Tarantino movie for the first time since Jackie Brown. Um, but it, it's I remember seeing it in theaters, feeling very uncomfortable. When Kurt Russell's character is constantly beating Jennifer Jason Lee's character, the audience was laughing. And I was like, I don't think this is supposed to be funny. No, it's not. That's the thing. It's not like, I guess, like, you know, our audience, you know, it's like, oh, she's the bad person and he's, the, yeah. you know, he's the tough guy. It's not funny to watch him knock her around. Like, that's the no. thing. That's what makes Hateful Eight such a thing. There are no good people in Hateful Eight. There no, are no good people. <laughs> you can't root for anyone. They're all garbage and it's garbage attacking garbage. There's no satisfaction you get from one character killing another because you're not really rooting for anyone in particular. I mean, even when like the Bruce Stern and Walton Goggins are clearly racist uh, for the Confederate Army. But when you learn about Sam Jackson's character um, and you see more about him, he's also a terrible guy. So it's not it's not like you feel a ton of satisfaction when he's goading uh, Bruce Stern. Yeah, it's it's again, it is hateful. It's just and like, I mean, you can't it's not the title is not misleading. And so that and it's the fact that it is watchable, I think, is a a testament to Tarantino's writing and and directing ability. Yeah, but but it's still a a very tough watch. And I of all the Tarantino films, it's the one I might watch the miniseries one day. I I can't see myself going back and rewatching the movie. No, it's just too long. And it's too and long it's also, and it's just it's, – and it's unpleasant. In, and even on my first watch, the the finale, like the 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 climax and denouement of the film, or I guess the denouement of the film, uh, when there are only three characters left uh, roughly, uh, is like – it's like 25, 30 minutes and it just keeps going. And you're just – it's so brutal and there's so much blood and they're squirming and screaming and it doesn't end. And it feels like Tarantino kind of trying to get back to that Reservoir Dogs ending, but it's it's it goes on for too long that you're kind of just like, I'm ready for it to be over. Yeah, you're just – and at that point, like you're exhausted. The film's gone on for over two and a half hours. Yeah. 
And maybe that's the point. You're supposed to feel emotionally and, and physically uncomfortable and exhausted, but it's just... Uh, yeah. I mean, you can, it succeeds at bumming me out, so the yeah. film is a success. <laughs> yeah, in that regard. But I, I will say, having watched the Netflix version, I think it's it's a more watchable version of the film. Okay. I, I won't go on... I won't go forward to say it's better, but, like... Uh, I'm with you. I don't really see myself sitting down for three hours and watching the movie on Blu-ray. Um, like I'll easily watching Glorious Bastards or Django Unchained. Those are very long, but they're also very compelling and entertaining. Hateful Eight just kind of keeps going. That's why I say it, it's maybe better. It's not super cinematic. It's kind of better as a stage play, I think. Um, and in fact, I mean, if you know the history of it, the script leaked. Tarantino got mad. He said he was not going to make it. So he staged a live read of it. And that live read spurred him to write a new ending and to uh, actually go on and make the movie. But I think it works better as, as kind of a stage player or at least a miniseries to give you some breathing room. Yeah. It's not even a matter of just like, oh, it's too hard to watch. It just it it's too um, uh, samey. Like it's all in the same room. So it's all, it's, it's all, it's, and it's all in the same room and all the characters are assholes. Like they're different kinds of assholes arguably, but they're still just assholes. And so there's no, there's really no escape. No, no, it's rough. Um, so yeah. And so in our next episode, we will dive into once upon a time in Hollywood because I have seen it, but Adam hasn't. You so bastard. yeah, <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> that, <laughs> my screening was last night. What do you want from me? <laughs> Um, so do you want to, do you want to rank Tarantino's films? Uh, after I've seen once upon a time in Hollywood. All right. So we'll rank them in the next episode. How we'll about rank that? them on the next episode. And then maybe to like, kind of look back on his career as a whole and, and kind of talk a, a bit about kind of where Tarantino fits and, and talk about this self-imposed retirement. Yeah, let's, we'll do that. All right. Well, uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood and check the Collider weekly feed. Yes, Collider. on iTunes. We will be plugging that a lot on on our social media. So yes. you you will know where to go. Uh, and if you want to keep up with me on Twitter, you can follow me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time. <laughs>